Hi, this is Utah Phillips, and you're listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Welcome. And time still passing, passing like a leaf. Time passing, fading like a flower. Time passing like a river flowing. Time passing. And remembered suddenly like the forgotten hoof and wheel. Time passing as men pass who never will come back again. And leaving us, great God, with only this. Knowing that this earth, this time, this life are stranger than a dream. In our hometown of Nevada City, California, Nevada City, California, the queen city of the motherlode, which is a code word for burnt-out mining town. You were just listening to a poem, an excerpt from a poem called Stone, Leaf, a Door by Thomas Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe always wanted to be a poet, he said, and finally his publisher took what he regarded as poetic excerpts from his novels and compiled them into this book, which I picked up at the Thomas Wolfe gift shop in um, Asheville, North Carolina, where, by the way, they had had a pair. He was a very large man. They had a pair of his shoes on the sidewalk bronzed so that the school kids going there on tours could stand in Thomas Wolfe's shoes. I was there... uh, during a bitter rainstorm, so of course I took off my shoes and stood in them like uh, small bird bats. This is going to be a program, um, as that poem might imply, about my old home, about looking back to the place I came from, which is called Utah. Uh, I want it to be understood right at the onset that I regard the Mormons, those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with great fondness and with great respect. And it's in that spirit that I do uh, a great deal of this foo-for-ah. I left Utah in 1969 on the run uh, after some serious political problems there. And, you know, it's been almost 30 years since I've been back there to spend any time at all. But I know Utah as well as I, I know my own self, as well, as well as I know anything in the world. I guess that's why wherever I've lived since, I've never invested in, in that place. I've, my chips are all still in the pot back there in Utah, and uh, perhaps someday I'll choose to live there again. Here's a tale about when I first left Utah, and the first place I ever got paid money to sing folk songs was the old gaslight under the street in, uh, in uh, Greenwich Village. And uh, this, uh, well, this is a tale that was recorded, well, I don't know where, but uh, it'll occur to me later on. And it was 20 years ago last November, I got my first job singing folk songs in a place under the street in Greenwich Village called The Gaslight. Now, at that time, I was singing old Mormon pioneer songs because I was scared, see? But to keep myself sort of level with reality or what there is of it, uh, I would go out 
between shows to a bar next door called the Kettle of Fish. And I would order a double shot of Henry McKenna Sour Mash whiskey and drink it. Well, one night I was coming out of that bar, or out of that, 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 that club, the Gaslight, to go into the bar, and a young fella approached me down the street, wearing a tight suit and a string tie and a flat top crew cut. I knew him instantly to be a Mormon missionary. Well, he thrust his hand out and introduced himself as uh, Elder Olson from the Atlantic States Mission of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon. And I said, oh, the San Pete Olsons down there, Manti and Moroni, a lot of Scandinavian people there. And he allowed, he was. He said, you know, I heard you sing in there, and I appreciate you singing those old Mormon pioneer songs and letting people know who we are and where we come from. But those same people see you come out of that club and walk into a liquor bar and drink whiskey. That's a sin. You've got to stop doing that, or, or we're going to revoke your visa. You'll never set foot in Utah again. I said, give me that writing, kid. <laughs> no, I said, see, I, have a, I love LDS people. I lived with them for years. Get along fine. I have a secret weapon on LDS people, though. They're scrupulously honest, dead honest people. Wrong, but honest. <laughs> so I said to him, now, you've never tasted whiskey, have you? Him being an honest sort said, uh, no, I never have. I said, uh, I'm going to go in and get you a glass of whiskey, and you're going to stand right here and drink it. You will know it for the vile, tepid brew it is and what you've been whining about all these years. I went to go in. He grabbed my sleeve, stopped me. He said, if the president of the Atlantic States Mission of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon, was to be walking down the street and see me standing here drinking a glass of whiskey, they would ship me back to Utah, rip off my buttons, and break my flannel board over their knee. I would be in serious trouble. I said, I'll fix that. I went to Babe, the bartender, and I said, give me a double shot of Henry McKenna Sour Mash whiskey and put it in a teacup. And old Babe said, is that Mormon missionary out there again? Well, that's a true story, you know. I don't make these things up. I went from New York City up to Cafe Lena in Saratoga Springs where a lot of folk singers ganged around. I, again, they were staying up there and singing up there, and I was green as corn. I didn't know what I was doing. I was an unemployed organizer at the time. But I was feeling very, very homesick. One afternoon, I went down to the cafe. There was nobody there. It was a tiny place. And I sat on a bench, and I made up the first song I made up since I left Utah. It's called The Tellin' Takes Me Home. Let me sing to you all the old songs I know Of wild, windy places Locked in timeless snow And white crimson deserts Where the muddy rivers flow It's sad, but the telling takes me home Come along with me To some places that I've been Where people all look back And still remember when And the quicksilver legends Like sunlight turn and blend it's sad, but the telling takes me home We'll walk along some wagon roads Or down the iron rail Past lines of rusty Cadillacs That mark the Boomtown Trail Where dreamers never win And doers never fail It's sad, but the telling takes me home I could tell you all some lies that were just made up for fun Where the loudest, meanest bragging Could beat the fastest gun 
And I'll show you nameless graves that tell the way the West was won. It's sad, but the telling takes me home. I'll sing of my amigos who come from down below and whisper in their loving tongue the songs of Mexico. They worked their stolen Eden lost so long ago. It's sad, but the telling takes me home. I'll sing about an emptiness the East has never known, where coyotes don't pay taxes and a man can be alone, and yet have to walk forever just to find a telephone. It's sad, but the telling takes me home. Uh, let me sing to you all the old songs I know of wild windy places locked in timeless snow and white crimson deserts where the muddy rivers flow it's sad but the telling takes me home and indeed the telling does take me home by the way we're recording we are not recording we are doing this alive we have on, on a number of occasions done this in the production studio next door, and that was to to eliminate technical glitches and to be able to tighten things up and, and coughs and sputters and so on. But, you know, I, I really prefer being alive, preferring to know that there might be somebody out there who's alive listening to this. That's probably because I've been so accustomed to being in front of live audiences. And... Uh, and besides which, uh, to me, the engineering mind is a whole series of behavioral disorders that enable them to deal successfully, as we see on California, on the material plane, but not awfully well on the human plane. And we keep caving in again and again and again to the requirements of the engineering mind. And I say no, no, I say. If I forget things or if I cough, if I sneeze or if I flatulate, I don't care. That's the way it's going to be, and you just have to settle for it because this is live, damn it, live. Got that? All right. Tirade. I have no rant control. Utah is a place that is fraught with myth, fraught with tradition. Uh, it is a place unto itself, unlike any other place on earth. When you grow up in Utah, you learn a lot of stories which are quaint, obscure. The state bird in Utah is the, is the, the seagull, and it's a desert state. Why? Oh, you go down to Temple Square, there's a big granite column with a gold gilded seagull. I mean, it's a statue. They didn't gild a seagull. It's up there on the top of it. Seagull, if you go out to the beach, at Sunset Beach, we used to go out to Black Rock before, it went, before the water came up around it. And, and you take a lunch, you'd sit there and eat a sandwich, a seagull would fly down, snatch the sandwich out of your hand, you couldn't throw a rock at it, or the cops would let, arrest you and put you in jail. The place is bizarre, I tell you. The seagull, though, that was when they planted the first crop in Utah. They'd just come in down Immigration Canyon, they'd come from Nauvoo, where they'd been burnt out. This was the advance party under Brigham Young. They put the first plow into the ground and it broke. Because uh, the ground was all alkali, it was alkali flats. There was only one tree in the valley, and it was dead. Well, uh, they put that first plot in there. It was Heber C. Kimball's plot. That's the site of the old police station where the federal building is now, First South and State Street. 
they they penned off that that lot and ran water from City Creek Canyon down there to leach the alkali out of the soil. They needed that crop. They were desperate for it. They then they planted crops up in Ogden and south the city uh, the settlement the south down to Provo. They needed those crops, but the crickets came. Enormous numbers of crickets. They had that was fat city. They hadn't seen anything like that. You know, since their ancestors used to talk about things like that. Well, they started to eat up that crop. Well, hordes of seagulls materialized out of nowhere, and they started to eat those crickets, and the crop was saved. And that's why the seagull's the state bird now. That's the story you hear in school, but they never tell you the rest of that story. Brigham Young, the prophet, seer, and revelator of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon, and the Council of the Twelve Apostles, they waded in to those fields of grain to deliver loud hosannas for uh, being rescued from that terrible calamity. One of those seagulls, freighted by its by now digested cargo, swooped low and delivered itself upon Brigham's 24th wife, that would have been Amelia, drenched the poor woman. She said, Brigham, run and fetch a tissue. Uh, Brigham Young, imperturbable as ever, turned her and said, Why, Amelia, by the time I get back, that bird will be halfway to Provo. Here's an old Mormon song. Mormon kids used to like to sing this, although it's none too popular these days as uh, the church has become more and more conservative. Rosalie Sorrells, my old friend who collected songs all over Utah, learned off of this, uh, this off of some old folks up there in, by Logan in the Cache Valley. Brigham Brigham Young. Brigham Young was a Mormon bull, leader of the Roaring Shepherd of a flock of phantom sheep and a passel of pretty little lambs. Lived with his five and forty wives in the city of the Great Salt Lake, where they breed and swarm like hens on a farm and they cackle like ducks to a drake. Brigham, Brigham Young, it's a miracle he survived with his roaring rams and his pretty little lambs and his five and forty wives. Number 45's about 16, number 1 is 60 and 3. Among such a rat, how he ever keeps so quiet is a downright mystery to me. For the cackle and the claw and the jaw, 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 each one has a different desire. It would aid the renown of the best shop in town to supply them with half they require. Brigham, Brigham Young, it's a miracle he survived with his roaring rams and his pretty little lambs and his five and forty wives. Brigham Young was a stout man once, but now he is thin and old. I'm sorry to relate, there's no hair upon his paint where he once wore a covering of gold. For his youngest wife won't wear white wool, and the old ones won't take red. In tearing it out and take a turn about, they have torn all the wool from his head. Brigham, Brigham Young, it's a miracle he survived with his roaring rams and his pretty little lambs and his five and forty wives. Now his oldest wife sings songs all day And the young ones all sing songs Among such a crowd he had a pretty loud There was noisy as Chinese gongs And when they advance for a Mormon dance He's filled with the direst alarms For they're sure to end the night in a tabernacle fight To see who has the fairest charms Brigham, Brigham Young It's a miracle he survived With his roaring rims and his pretty little lambs And his five and forty wives 
Now there never was a house like Brigham Young's So curious and so queer For his wives were devil and he had a lot of trouble And they gained on him year by year And he sits in his state and he bears his fate In a sanctified sort of way He has one wife to bury and one wife to marry And a new kid born every day Brigham, Brigham Young It's a miracle he survived With his roaring rams and his pretty little lambs And his five and forty Brigham Young, Brigham Young, Rosalie Sorrells. The, 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 the church used to love to make fun of itself, and, and uh, most of the songs that I learn, most of the tales that I tell about that, uh, which might seem objectionable today, I actually learned from the bishop, the LDS bishop that lived next door to me there on Wilson Avenue. I was up there in Box Elder County uh, along the, the eastern shore of the Great Salt Lake, visiting a little town called Corinne, um, I was asking questions about the first trucking line there in Utah called Toppets Fuller, because uh, the Korean Utah was going to be a seaport at one time because it was felt, since it hadn't been explored, that uh, it might be an arm of the Pacific Ocean. So they were going to build a seaport. I was up there, place ghost town pretty much now. I was talking in, in a house, talking to some people, and the kids got fussy and wanted to go out on the beach and play, but the wind was up, and uh, the lady of the house said, you go out there now, John Baptiste, is gonna, his ghost is going to get you and carry her away. That was what they used to frighten the kids off of the beach when the wind was up. Well, that repeat my curiosity, John Baptiste. Now, I knew that, that a John Baptiste was a generic term among Mormon people for any French-Canadian. There are a lot of uh, French-Canadian uh, um, fur trappers that had settled there long before the Mormons came. So, yeah, John Baptiste is just another name for a, a French-Canadian fur trapper. But what about this one? What's the story with this one? Well, then I moved up to Will, uh, to 4th Avenue and, and M Street, which is Kitty Corner from the old graveyard, the old churchyard there. It was, it was started when the city was started. And I remember that graveyard particularly because it was on a hill, a long, long hill, and if there was a serious rain, the, some of the older graves would wash out, and the kids would be waiting at the bus stop, the school bus stop on the corner there, and they'd go out there, and sometimes the gutter, and the, the grade on the storm drain was covered with old bones and, and these remains, which then they would pick up and take to school for show and tell. It was wretchedly disgusting, but that's a fact. Anyway, I found out but John Baptiste was the, the keeper of that cemetery, and that he had was a grave robber. People get buried, and he'd dig them up and take their clothes and sell them, and he got caught at it. Well, then they didn't have federal courts, or they didn't have state courts or city courts. They had bishop's courts. Bishop's court found him guilty, and they cast him ashore on Fremont Isle, which is in the dead center of the Great Salt Lake. I'm in a wild, windy, barren isle, set him there to perish. But he disappeared. And some people say that he, you know, he just swam on shore. But anywhere that that's where that came from, that that the ghost of John Baptiste was was, was alleged to haunt that shore up by Corinne, Utah. And uh, if you were a kid out there when the weather was up, he was very likely to uh, to carry you off. Now here's where live radio gets to be live because I had intended to write this poem down and I forgot to. So now I've got to remember it, exhume it excavate it from my flagging consciousness 
because uh, I made a poem about John Baptiste of years and years ago, uh, sitting on the front porch of my house after I came back from working in the warehouse. Wish me luck. There was a grave digger in a north side graveyard. His profession is covered with shame. He dug down so straight, graves both narrow and deep, and they say John Baptiste was his name. And when the sun set on the great salt and sea, and the graveyard was shattered in night, with a spade in his hand he would lift out the sand, bringing new buried dead to the light. He robbed them poor dead folks of clothing and shoes, with none but the stars looking on. He made them a bundle up under his arm and took them to town for the pawn. The pawnbroker put a great sign in his door, get the best buy and funeral attire. But folks didn't know those clothes were for sale, but only a short, short time for hire. It wasn't long till the townspeople thought how so sudden this train come up, trade come about. They went first to the judges and then to the graveyard and called that grave digger out. And when they uncovered the new buried dead, there arose such a cry and a stir, and the women all fainted or covered their eyes, stark naked their relatives were. John Baptiste, John Baptiste, you're called to the bar to listen while sentence is read. To Fremont Isle, you are exiled to life, to starve there until you are dead. They cast him ashore on that barren cold isle to fetch for himself all alone. But when they returned only six weeks gone by, John Baptiste, the exile, was gone. Some say he escaped on a driftwood raft or swam to the mainland at night. Or oh, they searched and they climbed in the gullies and crags for a sign of the gravedigger's plight. Some say he escaped on a driftwood raft or swam to the mainland at night. But shore dwellers say on a stormy cold day, when the wind drives the waves onto land, you can still see the ghost of old John Baptiste come dragging his feet through the sand. His clothes are all his, clo his clothes are all soaked with the salt and sea spray and tattered to bits by the storm, and he carries a bundle of dead man's clothes, all rolled up under his arm. <sighs> well, I got it. I remembered a few few words transposed here and there, but that's the way it is. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that's still in my mind. You know, most people look at Utah as a purely Mormon state, uh, and of course they did settle it, even though there were fur trappers there earlier, Provost and Sublette and some of the other Miles Goodyear. But it was a mining state. Uh, of course, there was Kennecott, Kennecott Copper, the first mine superintendent, uh, got, became the governor, Governor Dern became the governor of Utah, and he was a Catholic. Uh, we had a Jewish governor in Utah, Simon Bamberger, who owned the Denver Rail Grand, Grand and Western Railroad. We used to ride his open-sided trains, the Bamberger, to go up to the amusement park called uh, Lagoon, north of Salt Lake. Then there, of course, was Park City, the big silver mines in Park City, the Silver King Coalition. And I remember so well when that was just a dying mining town like this one here until they got the area redevelopment, put in the big ski resorts and the chalets. I always objected to that. I mean, they needed it. God knows the town was dying. But, you know, there's a Western style of architecture that you see in the old Union Pacific hotels, the national parks, made out of logs. But the developers, the minute they said mountain snow, they said Alps. And so they built these chalets with all the curlicues and goo and decals on them. Just pissed me off down to my socks. I loved that town when it was an old decaying town. I loved sitting in Pop Jenks. It was an old, old hamburger stand with a, with a long marble a soda fountain in it. 
Uh, and I roamed around that town a good bit. I was working as a, as learning to be recording secretary for the USA CIO, uh, my union up there. I was going through the, the trash dump up at the other end of town at the foot of the road that goes up over Guardsman's Pass and down into Heber, down into the homestead, they call it. And I found a little tin with a belt clip, and it looked like one of those collapsible tobacco cans that tramps used to carry for snipe tins. And I asked around town, and nobody would tell me what it was. Finally, I talked to old Ken Webb, who had moved there from someplace else years before, ran a camera store, and Ken said, well, no, nobody wants you to know what that is because that's called a morphine tin. Some of these miners, some of them would never think of going into the deep mines without this tin of morphine in case they got trapped in a fire or a rock fall and knew they would never come out that uh, they wouldn't have to suffer too long, and it was a comfort to their families. But now so many of these immigrant miners were from Eastern Europe or from Italy, and they were Catholics, and of course suicide is a mortal sin, so that's why nobody was supposed to know what that was. I had this song in my head for years and years, and I never sang it because I, I was asked not to. But then um, I passed it along to uh, Kate Grizzle and Jody Steckert, and they put a tune to it, and... Uh, I, I hope it's okay to sing it now. Yeah, this is the Miner's Lullaby. Once long ago he was handsome and tall And fit to be called to the war We left our village His bucket and lamp And whistles away to the cage Where men young and old From all over the camp Gather in search of a wage Husband, sleep, lay your head back You can drain A slow falling leaf born
Again, kind of a jocular tune to be following the miners' lullaby. As a, the Mustache Bar has been long gone up in Park City. That was a place where I went to man after man sitting there at the bar and showed him that, and they looked at it and then turned their back to me and, and uh, shrugged their shoulders and wouldn't talk. Uh, but there's a story, and there it is for you. Now, down there over in the Uinta Basin, uh, south of Uinta Basin, there's a mountain called Blue Mountain, and uh, hunters used to go in there. It's a hard, kind of hard place to get to. Um, Blue Mountain, your azure deep. Blue Mountain with your side so steep. Blue Mountain with a horse head on your side. You have won my heart to keep. So many times I've taught that song to young folk singers in the East, and Guy Carawan learned it. And as they've traveled across the country, they've gone through the area south of Moab and Grand County, They've looked for the horse head on the side of Blue Mountain, and they haven't been able to find it. Nobody's been able to find it. I know where that horse head is, and I know why they're not able to find it. Now, if anybody knows the answer to that besides me, you send me a postcard, and we will share a deep mystery. Uh, that's, that's the country of Charlie Kelly. Charlie Kelly, an old, old man. I knew him when he was a, a tiny old man with a silver-headed cane, but he rode every inch of that on horseback. Started San Rafael Swell National Monument, was the first ranger. I think it's a national park now. He farmed down there in Wayne County, down in Torrey, Utah, where he built his own printing press because he wrote books that uh, were banned in Utah, like uh, Porter Rockwell, Brigham's Avenging Angel, because Brigham had some people you'd call hitmen today. Well, it was the wild frontier. But old Charlie Kelly, he farmed next door to uh, Amasa M. Lyman, who was an original apostle of the church, you know, two old men and two such contrary opinions. But now socialism was very popular at that time. It was long about 1912, and they were winning elections all over the country. And socialism was very close to the uh, more united order that the Mormons used to practice. 
So they talked to each other, Matt Sam Lyman and Charlie Kelly, about who was going to go to the Socialist Convention in Chicago. Uh, they drew straws, and Charlie Kelly got to go on the guarantee when he came back, he would tell a Mass M. Lyman what socialism was all about. Well, he got on the train in Salt Lake, UP up Echo Canyon, back to Chicago, came back, took the buckboard many days back down to Torrey. Mass M. Lyman had him over for dinner, said, well now, Charlie, what is this socialism? Charlie said, near as I can tell him, Massa, that means half of everything I got uh, belongs to you. Massa said, you mean if you had two houses, one would belong to me? Yes, sir, Massa, that's right. If you had two barns, one of them would be mine? Yeah. Yes, yeah, Charlie said, Massa, that's right. I mean if you had two hogs, one of them would be mine? Charlie said, damn it, Massa, you know I got two hogs. <laughs> let's, listen to, let's listen to Bob Bovee and Pop Wagner with Dakota Dave Hall doing Blue Mountain. So 
And I do know where that horse head is. That there's the line in there, the phrase in there. Uh, old Bob Diener, cowboy, when I was down on the dugout ranch, told me, "Calico treasure, my pony can't measure." Well, when they go into town to hoorah, you know, kind of drunk up into these Mormon towns, they would sometimes ride, drive their horses into the dry goods stores, and uh, get a bolt of calico, and then tie one end to the saddle pommel and dally it out behind the horses. They rode back into camp. Um, and what? how long is a bolt of calico? Well, it's nine yards long, and that's where that phrase, the whole nine yards, comes from. See, I bet you didn't know that. My first protracted picket line was in Utah up at the state capitol on the top of State Street. We were picketing. I was, well, Ammon Hennessy, the Catholic anarchist who started the Joe Hill House, the Catholic Worker House in Salt Lake. It's an old man. But we were picketing against capital punishment, uh, against killing people. In Utah, you had your choice between hanging and shooting. It used to be there was a third choice, beheading, because the Mormons believed in blood atonement. The fellow that was going to be executed was Jesse Garcia, being executed as an accomplice in a, a prison murder. Actually, he was the lookout at the bottom of the stairs. He was 16 years old when he was put in prison. Chicano fellow. The, all through the trial and all through the, the uh, uh, newspaper stories, uh, the, the racism was really evident. But it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered uh, what, what, what uh, race, what culture, uh, ethnicity he was. Still, we were dead set against the idea of capital punishment. Had many conversations with uh, Jesse's sister uh, about him. Well... It was a long and long and difficult fight. Finally, the Board of Pardons wasn't going to do it. The governor wasn't going to, wasn't going to commute to life as we wanted. It was a life imprisonment. Ammon said we were all going to meet then out at Point of the Mountain, the, the new prison, um, on the execution morning so that when the sun rose, we, we would be there to hear the sound of the guns. I felt so badly about the whole thing that I stayed behind at the Joe Hill house, and mainly out of my conversations with Jesse Garcia's sister, I, I made this, uh, this corrido, Jesse's corrido. <laughs> Together you'll find us Neat the street lamps at midnight We're there Our spirits like smoke That blows through the night Restless but going nowhere Trouble is all we can give you But trouble is all we have known Our lives like water That runs through our hands Leaving us unloved and alone our fathers, you say, were just like us Our children will all be the same Hair like black leather and skin brown as wood Speaking some low Spanish name 
Remember the mothers who gave us our lives Like grass in the spring of their years And left us behind with hearts light as wine Their breasts undissolved by our tears The things that I do are all very bad things I do them and then don't know why You hold up your children with blue or brown eyes And say they're much better than I My friends, they too all despise me I do all the wrong they have planned And all that I have for the years of my life Is a cross that I've cut on my hand me in jail behind iron bars you find me with blood on my hands tomorrow I'll stand up in front of your guns and give you the life you demand but when you sit down at your table tonight with children and wife sitting by recall this quarry though my red blood is made and now me some goes goodbye Jesse Garcia, of course, Mac Merrill Rivenberg, uh, the other uh, fellow, um, he committed suicide in his cell before the execution could happen. And James Warner Bowen, who was uh, the Mormon boy that was the third third one convicted, he was uh, was uh, set free. And that's sometimes the way things work. So that meant that they'd had their blood atonement, and uh, right at the last minute they did reprieve Jesse Garcia. But he's still still in prison. He's been in prison all all those years. Well, we're drawing to the end of this uh, little uh, rhapsody about my old home, and I'm glad I had a chance to, to play something by that Rosalie Sorrell's collected back there. Rosalie, she lived up by the cemetery where I did. She lived on P Street, 2nd Avenue. They used to say, if you want to find Rosalie's, go to 2nd Avenue and P. But she had a, a pet raccoon, uh, there's a, a raccoon that, but they lived up in the in the graveyard. A raccoon was run over in the street in front of her house, but she found the one of the babies in the bushes uh, alongside the cemetery. So she came home and bottle fed it, and uh, raised it uh, to an adult raccoon. She it would sit at the table and eat. She paper trained it. It would only use the newspaper in the corner. But then it got adult and and uh, felt that mating urge, and so she let it go stood in her back door for three days to see if it would come back, finally saw it up there on the horizon by the cemetery. It gave a squeak of joy and hurtled down the hill, right up to her on the back porch. She reached down to pick it up. It went right through her legs and skidded to a stop on that newspaper over in the corner of her kitchen. Now you're going to hear a true story. You didn't know? In the Sharks skip. in the Great Salt Lake? Do I de detect a note of skepticism? <laughs> they say swim in the Great Salt Lake, the tourist publicity people say, that the water is more dense to the Dead Sea. I mean, you bob like a cork in, the, in that dense water. Don't do it, there are sharks out there. How it come about? 
Well, it was Brigham Young. Brigham Young, prophet, seer, and revelator of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon. Great man used to say, I don't care how you bring him as long as you bring him young. Well, <laughs> they were polygamists, you understand. Back in those days, pioneer days, polygamy was a kind of profit sharing. Uh, there on the He saw that enormous body of water, the Great Salt Lake. For all he knew, it was an arm of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. Nobody ever, he didn't know if it would, the only person ever sailed all the way around it was Jim Bridger in a bullhide boat, and he never told anybody. Well, Brigham Young wanted to have merchant marine shipping on the Great Salt Lake. Built a fleet, built a seaport, uh, Corinne, Utah, and Box Elder, you've been up there. And it's a ghost town now, you know, tumbleweeds down the street. Why? because the iron bottom boats wouldn't draft enough. The water is so dense and the slightest swell and they would pitch over. And that was that for merchant marine shipping on the Great Salt Lake. <laughs> but it is indeed an enormous body of salt water. Now, Brigham Young was a Vermont boy, you know. He was a, a New Englander. He said, why don't we have whale fisheries the way they have back in New England, Nantucket, New Bedford, New Beige? Well, he sent the big barrel wagons with the iron hoops around them, ox drawn up Echo Canyon across the plains over the Platte River, uh, back to New Bedford, Massachusetts, filled those barrel wagons full of salt water and little baby sperm whales, hauled them all the way back across the plains, down Echo Canyon, out onto Corinne Point, turned them loose into the Great Salt Lake, and oh, they did breed. <laughs> no natural predators. It was an ecological calamity. You don't, I, I don't make this stuff up. I really don't. <laughs> there was a time within living memory that, that where Bear River comes down out of, uh, out of, by Cache Valley, in the Bear River Bay, you could have walked across Bear River Bay on the backs of the sperm whales ganged up there to feed on the brine shrimp. Wow. There was Brigham Young, that fantastic, ingenious, inventive pioneer mind. He sent those same barrel wagons with the hoops around them and ox drawn up Echo Canyon, across the plains, across the Platte River to New Bedford one more time, filled them full of salt water and little baby killer sharks. <laughs> Hauled it all the way back across the plains, those sharks matured en route, and when they got to the Great Salt Lake, turned them loose. And those sharks ate up every last sperm whale in the Great Salt Lake. It's been years since anybody's seen a sperm whale in the Great Salt Lake. <laughs> There's a plethora of sharks out there. Don't swim it. There was one big shark. People have been trying to catch it for years. No luck. Huge shark. Up by Corinne Point. I wrote that song about uh, John Baptiste, yeah. which I think you know, but I probably forgot. And cruise back and forth there. I went up there one weekend to, to see if it was as big as everybody said it was. I wasn't going to swim out there with a tape measure. Oh, no, sir. I have brains in my tuchus, the way the Navajos say. <laughs> well, you speak Navajo. Oh, I, was, I had an army surplus rangefinder from Western Trading uh, down War Surplus Place down next to the Lyric Theater on State Street. Um, and I had a new dollar pocket watch with a second hand on it. 
And I was going to use the rangefinder to estimate its distance from the shore and then, and then with my pocket watch time it in transit and through a complex series of, of uh, machinations I was going to estimate its approximate length. Well, I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing and I tripped over a piece of driftwood and dropped my new dollar pocket watch into the water. That shark spun on its tail, dove down, and swallowed my new dollar pocket watch. Ten years later, <laughs> almost to the day, I was up there with my older boy, Duncan. We were ready. We had a, a quarter-inch nylon rope. That, that, that shark was still alive. Nobody had caught it. I had a three-prong hook with ham hocks for bait. I swung that thing around my head and I flang it out there. Flang, that's pluperfect passive subjunctive of the <laughs> verb to fling. Flang it out there and that shark bit. For four solid hours we strained with that brute with the sweat pouring off of our pain-wracked bodies. Finally hauled it up onto the, onto the beach and I cut it open, reached inside. Probably think I'm going to tell them something irredeemably stupid, like that I found my pocket watch and it was still ticking. That's what they think. I found a pawn ticket. <laughs> That's because it was a loan shark. I don't make this stuff up. <clears throat> that tale is as true as the day I was born. Now, we're going to finish off here. You know how the Pentecostals speak in tongues, different tongues that are totally unintelligible? You are going to listen to <clears throat> a completely unknown tongue. This is uh, the Walter Hayes Band. I got this at Deseret Bookstore in Salt Lake. This is Mormon rap. Mormon, Mormon rap, do the Mormon rap. Mormon, Mormon rap, do the Mormon rap. My Mormon rap will make you see I'm as funky as Donnie and Marie When I go to church, I'm in a good mood Cause they all treat me like a righteous dude When I watch TV, I feel inspired Cause I listen to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir the Mormon, Mormon rap Do the m m Mormon rap Mormon, Mormon rap Do the Mormon rap I'm a fine young man, I'm living clean Don't smoke, don't drink, if you know what I mean I don't touch soda pop, if it has caffeine You might say I'm a good little Sunbeam. I didn't even date till I turned 16. I don't even know the meaning of the word obscene. Flippin', fetchin', scruddly me. Well, ye many Christmas and fiddle dee dee. Mormon, Mormon back to the mush mush Mormon back. Mormon, Mormon back to the Mormon back. Now Brigham Young, he's my main man, cause he brought the pioneers to the promised land. Brother Brigham might be related to me. I check it out when I do my genealogy. He didn't want to settle just anywhere. That's why we got a place called Temple Square. I wish I could have seen old Brigham's face. When he came. <laughs> 
that's that for this particular odyssey uh loafer's glory the hobo jungle of the mind i really enjoyed playing and saying these things for you we'll see you again All this, which he had left and known in his childhood, and yet had never had tongue to utter, he seemed to, to know and understand so well that he himself became its tongue at utterance. The more its child, because he had been so long away from it. The more its eye, because he saw it again as it must have seemed to the first men who ever saw it, with the eyes of discovery, love, and recognition.